and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're doing on Tuesday evening. Joining me from Chicago, Illinois, where he's had a busy day. Uh, one of our Midwestern-based reporters who covers the Bucks and the uh, it's the Bulls. But today is a Bucks day, Jamal Collier, because the Bucks. Okay, it was a surprise that they fired Coach Adrian Griffin today. The idea that this wasn't working out and could lead to a dismissal wasn't jaw-dropping shocking. But whenever a team that is 30 wins, 13 losses, coming off of a win, they won uh, against the yeah. Pistons on, on Monday and then fired the coach the next day, it's obviously going to cause a reaction. So uh, your thought process here and what you know about why the Bucks made this decision and what led us to this point. Yeah. As you said, you, you beat the Pistons twice, but you do it by single digits both times. And like, that just, you know, that's just not good enough. Right. <laughs> yeah, Like you said, it's something that you think we've, we've thought and talked about, like that this things were sort of like trending toward this path. And like kind of the unfortunate thing is like, it felt like maybe we'd be having this discussion, like after the Bucks lost in the fifth game in a first or second round series or something, right. When their season sort of imploded. And I think to their credit, and it took some temerity really to do it, some goal, like to, to, say we're not going to let it get to that point. I mean, I think that the way it's been described to me is that this wasn't necessarily a, a, a one, there wasn't something that sparked this or one particular thing, really just an accumulation of a lot of sort of many red flags and signs over the course of the season that just kind of looked at the, to look at the Bucks leadership and uh, front office, uh, John Horace and, and above, and to say like the expectation the championship you know expectation is championship robust here and we don't feel like this team is on a track to winning a championship despite what the record is despite what all the other sort of influence the factors are on that and we think that there's an opportunity to upgrade here and we think that it is clear that we need an upgrade here and i think that um you know again it, it, it takes some fortitude to make this move and some conviction because the record was not screaming it you know they could have kind of kept trugging along and Maybe things would have worked out. Maybe Giannis and Dame would have magically, you know, this, that, and the third. But I think that, you know, the Bucks looked at what had kind of been quietly screaming at them all season long and finally decided we need to make a change on this. And um, I, I mean, I'll be honest, Brian, I, you know, I still am shocked that it happened uh, at this moment and happened today and really without like a real inciting incident to really force, force their hand. The inciting incident may have been, you know, the idea that it, they wanted to hire a coach with enough time to make changes. Yep. And it does appear that that coach is going to be Doc Rivers, although I don't think that it's a done deal. As we record this pod, you know, maybe by the morning they might get there. But I do think there's a there's a, a reasonable to strong chance that Doc Rivers is going to replace them. And, you know, the idea that you replace a coach at midseason from the outside and can save it is that's a big stretch. But what the Bucks were basically saying is that's they evaluate the path, the, their chances to win at the highest level better going that route than than, than going with Adrian Griffin. And it, it, it's a tough hand he was dealt here because he was expected to come in and immediately deliver, which he knew when he took the job. But then the team that they hired him to coach, which was a totally different style team with Drew Holiday in there, which was it was changed dramatically right before the start of training camp. And that was one complicating factor. Another complicating factor was they just didn't feel, you know, they don't have the runway to allow him to improve as a coach. So he may very well have coached throughout this year, improved throughout this year, learned and even come back next year and been much better. And they may have ended up with the upside coach that they thought they hired. But this is what happens when you hire a first time head coach. I don't care who you are. You hire a first time head coach. You are assuming 
you are you are taking on the assumption of growing pains. I remember Brad Stevens, who was regarded as one of the best coaches to you know to come in and instantly you know, sort of figure it out. He had no pressure when he came. And I remember Brad Stevens telling the story about how he, you know, during his rookie year, when the Celtics were basically rebuilding as a coach, he drew up a play. He, you know, he got in this end of game situation, real high stress situation. He had to drop a play and he drew up this play. You know, he's famous for his after timeout plays, right? Like this is his bread and butter. Like this is, this would work in eighth grade basketball, junior high basketball, you know, what have you. And he draws up this big play to win the game for a baseline out of bounds play and the Celtics go out there and the ball's on the sideline and he's totally <laughs> messed it up and he just totally screwed it up. And, but look, the Celtics weren't playing for anything. Adrian Griffin does that and it becomes public. It becomes a story on first take. And so that's the, not that he did do that, but I'm just saying like, that's the, that's the nature of it. And so I, I can't tell you, I was telling you, talking to you earlier, this reminds me so much of what happened with David Black. David Blatt and Adrian Griffin are very different coaches, totally different sets of backgrounds. David Blatt was a head coach for many years. Adrian Griffin was not. One of them coached overseas, um, et cetera. But if you look what happened when the Cavaliers fired David Blatt on January 16th, right? or in, uh, Janu- in uh, January of 2016, I looked it up, Jamal, because I thought this is about when it happened. And sure enough, David Blatt was fired January 22nd of that year. Adrian Griffin fired January 23rd. When Blatt was fired, the Cavs were in first in the East at 30 and 11, and they had just won the night before against the Clippers, who were not good. They were rebuilding, not quite like the Pistons, but it was not, a, <laughs> it was not an impressive win. And Adrian Griffin and the Bucks were 30, or they're 30 and 13. So yeah. it's, it's kind of comparable. And really, what happened in that case, the Cavs came to the conclusion that they didn't think that they had their best chance with David Blatt as the head coach and that they had a better chance with Tyron Lue replacing him, regardless of the fallout, regardless of how they would be questioned and everything like that. And that's essentially, the details would be different, right? But that's essentially what their bucks are doing here. Whether it's Doc Rivers or somebody else, they're saying, let's not come to the conclusion that we had the wrong head coach in May. Let's come to that conclusion in January when we can do something about it. I think that's it. You, you made a point that, you know, I think was really one that was hammered home for me in discussions and talking to folks today is that, you know, the job that, that that Griff was hired for over the summer, the team that you said that he was hired for was just a different job and a different team than the expectations that that shifted once they got Damian Lillard. And, you know, I think that in, in a lot of ways, having a first year head coach, if the team would have stayed the same with Drew Holiday, just felt like it may have been easier. You just would have had a lot of guys who played, you know, together for a while. You know, it almost feels like the defense solves itself when you have Drew Holiday manning the point and, and Brooke Lopez. And it just felt like, you know, if you had had that team that had been together for a few years and you kind of bring in a new coach in just a few tweaks, then maybe that would have been an easier process for, for Griff. And, you know, it was just clear. I think that we all saw it. We all asked. On this podcast, you know, everybody was kind of wondering, so what? Why aren't the Bucks running more in pick and rolls? <laughs> you know, with with Damian Giannis and and the defense, it's like you know, yeah, they lost Drew Holiday, and I think they obviously were going to take a step back, but this far of a step back when you still have Giannis and Brooke Lopez, two you know seven foot all world defensive players in their own right. You know, there, there was the whole incident with Brooke Lopez and sort of his scheme in the drop. 
def- his defensive scheme, whether or not he was sort of dropping or attacking pick and rolls. He, he changed um, the way that they were playing defense under Mike Budenholzer yeah. very effectively for the last four or five years. And it's not as simple as just saying that because the personnel is very different. But he changed it and it didn't work. The players chirped about it and he kind of changed it back, which is almost worse, right, Jamal? Because it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, if, you're, if you believe in a system, you know, like, yeah. And it was five five or six games into the season, too. It right. was not a very long runway. And I think that, like, you you know, these are things that individually, right, maybe you can excuse, maybe they don't add up to anything. But when you kind of take the sum of it, you take the sum of sort of a post-game comment from Giannis where we talk about when you, and you and Giannis talk about everybody, but sort yeah, of he, he talks several times about being disorganized. Several yeah. times he said that. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, when you sort of just take the the, the accumulation of it all, all those little incidents and, and this is wrong and this is wrong. And I think that it just kind of was screaming at you that something here is off. And again, this team doesn't have any time to waste. Like, you know, you talked about it, the margin is is not there. Like they, they, they're old, you know, they're a veteran team. They've got a lot of guys on the other side of 30. And it's like every season, every game, every chance at it is precious. And they looked at it, as you said, like you can't, you can't waste one trying to figure it out or trying to have a guy learn on the fly or on the on, on the job right now they felt like they had to make a move and try to i think they're going to obviously target some coaches with more experience and i think doc rivers obviously is right at the top of that list right so you ask yourself well then why did they hire him in the first place now i have this this policy it doesn't apply to all situations but this was one of them if you are going to fire a highly successful coach a coach who's had a lot of success not a coach where it's a four-alarm fire and you've got a disaster in your hands. But if you're going to fire a coach who had a lot of success, you better really know who you're going to replace him with. You better have a plan, which, by the way, I think they do here. Not that Adrian has had success, but I think they have a plan. Yeah, but I don't, think, I don't think that they had a plan when they fired Mike Budenholzer. And, the, you know, the funny, the funny story is always, you know, the, 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 the toe on the line had – Kevin Durant's toe yeah. not been on the line in 2021, and the Nets won game seven. The game didn't go to overtime. A lot of people believe Mike Budenholzer would have been fired, and there would have been another coach, and who knows what happens with Giannis, whether he assigns the extensions, and who, who knows if you know they do have a title. But his foot was on, his foot was on the line. The, the, the Bucks did win in overtime, and they won the title day. So they do end up firing Bud two years later. And then, look, they've got to move forward, Jamal. They can't like legislate what they did last summer, but they made a decision to hire a coach without experience when they had other guys in there, including Nick Nurse. You know, Nick Nurse, I think, had real interest in the job, and I think he was a finalist, and they didn't go that route. And I'm not saying that like it's a catastrophic decision, but I look what's happening with Philly right now and what Nurse has been able to guide them through this year, and I look what's happening with Milwaukee, and think that that decision to go with Adrian Griffin over Nick Nurse, if it did indeed come down that way, could be a pivotal one. I've maybe never been around a team, you know, that was winning at this level that was, you know, I don't know if I want to use the word unhappy, but like there just was not, usually you think you're in second place, you're 30 and 13, everybody's in a great mood. Everybody's feeling it, the vibes are great, whatever. And there was just not not that the case around them. And you know who was like in, that? The 2015 yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, sorry. Yeah, and I, and I, but I think that, that that's just the point of it. I think that 
for whatever reason, the vibe was was just not there. And and it was like you said, it was screaming at really anybody that was around the team closely. And and you know, to be fair, these last couple of weeks and months, it even felt like the, you know, you could see it from far away. Like it wasn't something that was sneaking up on people. And, and, and to your point about the Bucks and that decision that they made over the summer, they're about to be paying now, Brian, if if, if and when they want to move quickly on hiring another head coach, three head coaches. Yeah. But still on the table. They'll be have, have to pay Griff and then they'll have to sort of hire whoever the next coach is to his next contract. And that is, I think, you know, think about all the things that this ownership group and this team and the money that they've committed uh, to keeping this team together, to paying luxury taxes, to keeping out, you know, whatever it is like that is is sort of not, again, a small you know, it's, it's it's a it's not a small ass not a small thing from this team. And I think that it sort of speaks to their understanding of the situation that it was untenable and that it was sort of not going to end in you know the goal of the championship the goal is is that or, or that it was sort of not going to end that way for them to sort of make that drastic of a step you know at this point in the season it, it really is, is something i'm still kind of wrapping my head around if as you said it's something that also everything every alarm bell has been ringing to you that it's, it's sort of coming here at some point or something's going to have to come to a head with this yeah well wes edens who's right now the governor of the buck yeah he's one of the of the owners. He's also one of the co-owners of Aston Villa, who is an English soccer club. And last year, they replaced their manager midway through the season. And you know, I'm not saying that Wes picked that manager or whatever. I'm not really. But like it was a pivotal move. And they zoomed up the standings, ended up finishing higher than they had in years, finished, I think, seventh last year. And they're having a great year this year. And it is not uncommon in English soccer to replace your manager once or even twice during the course of a season because the, the, the consequences are so dire over there. If you finish in the bottom three, it costs you tens of millions of pounds and you get knocked out of the league. And so like, you know, I'm not saying that Wes Edens operates the Bucks the way I would operate Aston Villa, but <laughs> like it's a similar kind of thought process. Um, it's got a lot of, a lot of pot, like you said, the, the Cavs made the David Blatt change. They won the championship that year. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think there was a, a stat about the Lakers, the weird Jack McKinney, you know, uh, as well. So it's like those, you know, it's got a lot of positive evidence that you make this kind of drastic move and it can pay off for you. But, it, you know, the thing about the Blatt thing and certainly the Jack McKinney move is that, you know, or, you know, it was more Westfall, but, you know, yeah. Magic was blamed for that. LeBron got a lot of heat for the expectation that he got David Blatt fired. Um, I talked to all the parties involved. I wrote a book on the season. Yeah, LeBron didn't like David Blatt. Yeah, LeBron undermined David Blatt. His respect level for him was low. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he didn't, like, go in and, like, slam his fist on the table and say, get this guy out of here. He was operating with them. He was trying, you know, they were 30 and 11, you know, they were trying. Yep. Giannis, I don't, you know, Giannis is going to get some, it's not, I don't think anybody thinks that Giannis went in there and wanted him out, but, you know, Giannis was a part of their search. You know, Giannis met with the coaches. Yep. I think he met with all the candidates before they were hired. Now, I'm not saying that Giannis said, I want this guy hired. I mean, he did know Adrian Griffin from before when he was assistant with the Bucks. He had more of a rapport with him than anybody else. But like, you know, I'm not saying Giannis deserves any blame, but like there is a Giannis factor at play here. And Giannis's demeanor and comments, even if they were accurate, played a role. And this is not something that Giannis has, has sort of had at his feet before. He, you know, nobody really blamed the buck, the bud firing on him. But like, I'm saying he's getting blamed for this, but he yeah. had a hand in the way this all played out. 
Yeah, and I think that uh, you know it's it's a great point, and I think that you know at some point during the hiring process, Giannis's you know faith in uh, in Griff, uh, let's say David Blatt, Adrian Griffin, not David Griffin. There we go. Yeah, it's too yeah, many. That, that, <laughs> I know there's too many Griffins involved here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but you know, Giannis, uh, I do think you know his influence early on in the process and influence and just sort of like you said demeanor and the way he's sort of been speaking after these games and his frustration i mean i remember a time this season early on in uh i want to say it was maybe the second or third game they had just lost to atlanta and atlanta had you know was not playing well atlanta's not playing well really all season but atlanta just kind of came in and lit them up and Giannis was maybe as animated as ever ever seeing him after a game in the locker room just at the whiteboard, like diagramming plays, drawing up, figuring out space. And he would, you know, Bobby Portis came out of the shower and he grabbed Bobby and it's like, you have to be here and I need to be this and, and, and this, this and this. And he was sort of like very, uh, you know, it was a sort of frustration, but like inquisitive, but like trying to figure it out. And it was it was a, a, a way that I just had not seen him act, you know, really throughout his career, really without but when Bud was there and there was assistant coaches around and, and such. And I think that, you know, in general, the players, there was not th throughout some of these sort of bunning head incidents or, or questions about sort of how their scheme or how those things were working. I do think the players enjoy Griff. I do think that, you know, people in, like liked working with him. He was a nice guy and, and people tried to give him as much benefit of the doubt that he was going to get better and grow and work. But, you know, it just kind of is the the championship expectations and demands that begin with a player with like Giannis and then the buck situation when you have so much invested in this team financially, draft pick wise, the future, everything about these years having to matter and having to produce success. Uh, I think that that all sort of equal to just, again, a pressure cooker that is tough to, to put a first year head coach in because there's not a room for error. There's not room to be figuring it out on the fly. You know, and I think another thing is, is you know, the honest of it all, but also just the, the portion of Dame as well and, and trying to make sure that Dame is integrated into the system, into the team and keeping him, you know, just a part of it and, and, and happy and, and involved in all of it as well, I think is, is something that matters for Milwaukee. And, and I'm curious to see how the next head coach and how they sort of handle, you know, the Dame and Giannis of it all, because they still feel like two separate orbits more than one thing yes. kind of working together on the floor. And I think that that, you know, if if I'm making the hire has got to be sort of priority number one is I need somebody with some kind of imagination and real, like, again, imagination to, to have Dame and Giannis work together. And, and, and you know, I'm saying that they're second in the league in offense, but again, they still feel like such separate entities. Uh, in their own way. Yeah, they, they have had success in certain things. It wasn't a total failure, there, especially in yeah. the late-game offense with, with Dame. I will say, I think it was a significant red flag when Terry Stotts resigned before the start of the season. Now, I'm not saying that if Terry Stotts was – Terry Stotts is an offensive coach. Um, in fact, the reason he got run out of a long tenure in Portland was because he couldn't get them to defend. So I'm yeah. not saying that if Terry Stotts was on that bench, that the Bucks' <laughs> defensive issues would be solved. He was their offensive for the coordinator. I'm not sure he was termed that, but I think that was kind of his role. But Terry Stotts has been around the league for a long time. And getting this job, if like if they had a great season, if he wanted to be a head coach again, one of the ways that you get yourself back relevant is be the lead assistant for a coach that's a championship team or close to a championship contender. Like it was a great opportunity for him to have this job. And not only that, they trade for Dame Willard, a guy who he had a yep. lot of experience with, which made his role even more important. Um, in working with Dame. I mean, he was the guy who was there as Dame became a superstar. Not that it was all because of him, but, um, you know, it made a lot of sense. 
And then when he resigned before the start of the season, you could tell that there was some misfiring. You know, there, you know, he didn't resign because of a personal issue. He resigned because he didn't fit. And there was a, you know, they just didn't, they didn't see eye to eye. And that's very rare. It's, it's, it's not a, like, I remember uh, when Jason Kidd uh, made Lawrence, remember when they made Lawrence Frank, uh, I don't know, this is before you come from the league, write the reports. Do you remember that? Lawrence Frank was, you know, they, yeah. hired, they hired Jason Kidd right out, right off the court. He was playing for the Knicks and playing well for the Knicks and the, and the Nets decided they wanted to hire him. And they basically took him away from the, from the Knicks and said, we're going to make you our head coach immediately to coach the, the team that had Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Joe Johnson on it. And they, they had Lawrence Frank be his, his lead assistant. They paid him a ton of money. And he had been his head coach with the Nets previously when they went to two. I guess Byron Scott was coaching with the finals. But he had been Jason Kidd's coach and they had a good relationship. And it just went immediately wrong. And Lawrence ended up getting like sent home. And he was, you know, the story was that he was going to be writing report, um, <laughs> you know, from home. And, uh, you know, I think there was like Twitter memes or whatever of what reports Lawrence was fi- was filing as the Nets were struggling early in that season. But in that case, like it went terribly wrong with the lead assistant and a first year head coach. And the guy, you know, you know, he didn't quit. You know, he kept, you know, he did what yeah. he did. So the fact that Terry Stotts would leave, like I'm not again, I'm not saying that's why it didn't work out for Adrian Griffin, but like right there, even before you saw the issues with the defense, even before you saw the the organization issues, even before you saw him basically openly admitting he was yielding to his players and strategy on national television, <laughs> Terry Stotts leaving in that situation was the first, you know, like oh man, this may be not the greatest fit. And I'll say, Brian, that there was, you know, even after Terry Stotts, the Bucks just hired a, you know, just filled that spot last month uh, on their assistant. Trevor Gleason. Trevor Gleason. Like, I don't know Trevor at all, but like (laughs) they literally right after Christmas hired a coach who Adrian had. He's I think he's I don't know if he's Australian, but he was a coach in Australia, but he coached with. Adrian Griffin with the Raptors. Yeah. But there had been a. <laughs> He's probably still living at the Residence Inn, and the guy who him <laughs> the guy who got him. And I'm pretty sure he was saying how he was coaching in Australia, and he wasn't going to come over um, <laughs> until until he got the call from Chris. Uh, but oh you know, God, it, he blew it, his life up. And got, I, oh, I feel bad for this guy. There had been a push to 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 get, I think, some. Some a veteran presence and, and get some people on that staff and and I think even to replace Dots for a while and I think that that was another point of contention. There were just a lot of of, of stories and things you yeah, heard. Yeah, I will just say there. I think that the that the Bucks management kind of wanted a former head coach who was a little yeah. bit more established as opposed to a guy who had been a great head coach in Australia. But I don't know this for a fact. Just to be clear, my guess is. Adrian, knowing he was maybe in a little bit of trouble, didn't want to hire a guy who would very easily replace him as his lead assistant. And it took two and a half months or so, at least two months, for him to hire a replacement for Terry Stotts. And then it wasn't a guy who had hundreds of coaching victories under his belt. So the fact that it took so long to make that hire, and again, I don't know Trevor Gleason. He may be the Australian Red Auerbach. I'm not passing judgment on him, but like, again, that, that that's the hire that he felt comfortable with instead of hiring. I'm not going to say who I heard because I heard some of the guys that might've been options and they were guys who'd been head coaches before in the league. Yeah. That again, it doesn't mean that's what happened here, but it's a, it was an indication 
of things not being a well-oiled machine. Yeah, as as you said, like I already know as we've been saying, there's it's sort of not one incident. It's just like these accumulation of things that yeah. it, almost like the thousand cuts, right? Like you just kind of keep seeing. Jackson, Jackson says. Jackson, yeah. Jackson, Jackson is defending respect. Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> we are not going to speak ill. We regret, we regret the year. The two-time <laughs> NBL Coach of the Year. Uh, thank you, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I think that's I think I think that's true. We've got a lot of time left in the season, Jamal. I, I don't it's not looking good right now. It was funny on NBA Today on Monday I was on the show and all the people who were on the show because it's the final four in the NFL and they did a little little thing like who's your final four, who predict your final four for the NBA? And like three or four of us were all on there and none of us had Milwaukee in our final four. Oh because none of us trusted the way that they were playing. But it is only mid-January. And while it's not a good sign to replace your coach uh, 43 games into the season, there is time. And so I still respect the Bucks' talent level a lot. I didn't respect how they defended. But I don't think if you're a Bucks fan, this should mean that you're in huge trouble. It's definitely an issue, but like, I'm telling you, by the time the Cavs, with all due respect to David Blatt, by the time the Cavs were fighting through the playoffs, nobody was remembering David Blatt's name. And they ended up winning the whole thing. But there is plenty of time for Doc or whoever the coach is in there to try to get things sorted out, at least get them on a, a better footing. I agree with you. I mean, again, the record is still where it is. They still have two all-world players. Like Giannis has just been on fire this year. He's, he's like shooting 60-some percent on twos, like 60% I think overall from the field right now. I don't know. I think I, you know, I, I still want to see it at the end. I want to see what they hire and see what they look like. But, you know, they got so, even though their defense has been this bad, it still feels like you can find a way to make this team an average defense with Giannis and Brooke Lopez on the floor. And you make some more cohesion with those two guys on offense. <sighs> no, your, your odds are, I don't know what the, I didn't look at what the sports books uh, fell to, but your odds are probably going to get pretty good on, on the Bucks probably at this point in this point in the season. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't count them out. And I think that they realize, again, like they got an opportunity still here. Uh, and there's, there's still a lot, a lot of long way to go. We'll see what I they would, do also, you know, deadline. They're just, they don't have a lot of assets, don't have any assets. As a matter of fact, really didn't talk about as far as trade deadline wise go. But uh, John Horse has found a way to do something and get something done the last few years. I would still, you know, expect him to be poking around. Yeah, know, I mean, the next he, couple of weeks. hasn't he always done? On a trade at the deadline every year he's been general manager. My uh, anti-bulls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would like again. I don't think that it's going to be league changing, but I would not be surprised if they figure something out somewhere. You know, John Horst is is pretty resourceful, and uh, you know he's got a he's got a ring. I know Giannis was a big factor in it. He's yeah. got a ring for a reason. He stocked this team. So all right, we will. Um, Jackson says the Bucks still have the third best title odds. Yeah, yeah. Not really a whole lot of bang for your buck. Yeah. Well, what was the odds Adrian Griffin was going to be the first coach fired? You know, like that would have been a pretty penny. Although I'm, you know, I'm sure that there, it wasn't, you know, completely unforeseen. But (laughs) all right, Jamal, thank you uh, so much. By the way, stick around here. We've got uh, Jeremy Wu uh, coming up, uh, one of our draft uh, experts, and he will uh, talk about the uh, upcoming draft, uh, such as it is. But uh, thanks, Jamal. Thanks for taking some time out, and we'll uh, see you on Interstate 94 soon. More Hoop Collective podcast after this.
Okay, now joining us from Chicago is our ESPN draft analyst, Jeremy Wu. Jeremy, it's good to see you. You've got a mustache. I do, yeah. Uh, sometimes these things just happen. You can't, can't predict them. So. It's very Ditka-esque in Chicago. It's very, very Ditka-appropriate in Chicago winter. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. It's it's been it's been cold. I'm not leaving the house much. No no one to no one to see me. But we'll see. We'll see if it lasts the draft. <laughs> All right. Um, so you've been uh, watching very closely to these draft prospects. Everybody and their brother. It's a layup. They say, oh, it's a bad draft. It's a bad draft. It's a bad draft. We just saw uh, the plays. The, the the Pacers trade two picks in this draft because you know who wants picks in the 2024 draft. I'll just say, Jeremy, that I remember being told this about a draft a few years ago. There's nobody in this draft. Forget about it. It's not worth anything. And then the Milwaukee Bucks picked a kid from Greece named Yas Tenekumpo out of what was supposed to be one of the worst drafts in NBA history. So I will just say, I don't know anything about this draft compared to you, but I don't necessarily accept the concept that it's a quote-unquote bad draft just because everybody says it. What do you think? Uh, getting ready to evaluate these prospects or evaluate these prospects about this upcoming draft? Well, I think one realization I kind of had recently is like when we say it's a bad draft, you know, 2013, I think is one story. And I do think that if you ask most front office folks around the NBA who have been around long enough to tell you, like they probably would agree this is the the worst it's looked since 2013. But uh, when we say it's a bad draft, like what it really means is that the the current talent level of the players, which we can accurately assess because we're watching them and everybody's watching them all the time. The current talent level does not hold up especially well, but it doesn't mean there aren't going to be good players coming out of this draft, right? And, and so that's kind of the challenge. And I think it's, well, it's fun for me because I don't have to pick anybody, right? But uh, right. So I can't say it's fun. Uh, but uh, one of the interesting, I think, ongoing, very much fluid storylines here is, you know, who will go number one? How do teams view these top players? Because, you know, depending what week it is, what month it is, the answer might be different in terms of how you rank these guys. And uh, it's important to look at it very fluid. But I, again, I think when we say it's a bad draft, it means right now maybe nobody's playing well. Maybe no one's exciting. Uh, but it doesn't mean that in five years there will be no good players in this class, right? So I think, I think that's where I would draw the distinction, if that makes sense. Is there anybody that you're excited about who has maybe exceeded expectations and been like, wow, that guy is maybe better than we thought? Uh, this is a guy who play, who maybe scouts are saying, I need to go see this guy. I need to tell my general manager about this guy. Is there anybody who's fitting that bill for you at all? Yeah, I think right now, it's, I mean, it's, it's late January. Uh, the, the guy who's coming on, uh, for me, sort of making a pretty strong case is Cody Williams, uh, Jalen Williams' younger brother uh, at Colorado. Uh, he's been playing quite well. He's come back from injury. Uh, his last few games have been excellent. Uh, had a very, very good game against Oregon uh, this month. And I think I think he's starting to show, you know, to me, the type of stuff I think is interesting when you're thinking about who's going to be number one. You know, he has the advantage of Alex Saar, who is uh, someone who is also in that mix, is currently hurt. The the French big man playing in uh, Australia uh, for Perth. So uh, you've got him. He's emerged. You have Zachary Rissache, who I know you've seen uh, when you were in France. I saw him play one game, and now I'm an expert on him, Jeremy. Thank you very much for uh, pointing that out. You know, I got to give you your, your props. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he's in that mix. Uh, Isaiah Collier from USC is hurt. Uh, he was someone we thought yeah. would be in the mix. Yeah. So, yeah, real quick. So, Asar uh, is hurt in Australia. Uh, Isaiah Collier hurt, I believe, his hand or his wrist last week for USC. He was a guy who I think was most recently on year in Jonathan's um, top of your board, right? And who is the guy in Belgrade? Why am I forgetting his name? Topic. Topic. 
Nikola Topic. Topic, yeah. He is also, he just hurt his knee, right? And these are three guys who were in the top 10 who kind of needed to play. And not only is it a tough draft, but some of the top guys here are getting injured, right? Right. Yeah, it never makes it easier. Just ha- having to factor in missed time and how that changes things. And, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're having a great season and then your season's over, uh, but you only have good games to play, right? And everyone sees the good stuff, but it's more complicated in, in Collier's case. Um, you know, he's, he's no longer our number one. He was our number one for a little bit early in the season. Uh, his play did not really justify that. So change that up. But I, I think someone who still I think has, has quite a bit of upside in what is not a super strong like point guard crop, just, just physically he's very good. Uh, someone who I saw play in high school and was very intrigued by. I think the situation at USC, uh, they've got a lot of guys who like to have the ball. Not necessarily an excuse, but doesn't necessarily make him look the way that you would like him to look, right? So uh, there's a lot of context that makes that one a tough eval. But you've got him and you've got Topic, and these guys are all kind of uh, either hurt or having up and down seasons. So, you know, going back to, to Cody Williams, you know, when you see a guy like that with sort of building momentum midseason uh, coming after an injury, and he's a, you know, six, seven uh, sort of point forward type of player, uh, you can kind of talk yourself into, like, maybe that's the right answer, right? But uh, again, things can change so much, and it's it's January, so we know a little bit. Like, I think everybody has opinions, but it's important to not be too attached to it, I think, still, because of the way things can change. And inevitably, as you know, the pre-draft process, things always change, and guys move up and down for Reasons that sometimes make sense, sometimes don't. Yeah, I remember uh, talking to Jalen about Cody. Cody, I think maybe about a year ago, uh, Gavoni ranked Cody maybe two or three on his board. And, you know, Jalen was, I asked him, you know, how to compare, you know, what it was like when he was, you know, getting recruited to when, you know, Cody was getting evaluated. And he goes, I was never ranked by Draft Express. He's like, I, he's like, I had no frame of reference. Um, you know, Jalen... Uh, I can't remember where he started, but he obviously ended up at Santa Clara. I think he transferred once. Do you remember? I don't remember. Yeah, I think he was. I'm looking. You know, he was at Santa Clara for three years. Oh, he's at Santa Clara for three years. Okay, so anyway, he, you know, he's out of the Phoenix area, and obviously was a late lottery pick, and has turned out to be a terrific player. So it doesn't take a lot of incredible insight to say, what about his brother? And his brother is just way more highly thought of than Jalen was at the same age. You know, goes to Colorado, and that was a surprise, right? That was one of the highest Colorado pulling pulling Cody was one of the was one of the shockers of the the, the, the recruiting process uh, especially when he sorted up the uh, the evaluation boards he stuck with his commitment uh, could have gone to a lot of different places and has the size that you know a lot of teams want and you know has the pedigree and uh, you know where his brother was undervalued he is maybe benefiting from his brother not being given enough uh, attention. And uh, and really, even in the you know even in the, uh, the the recruiting process, maybe they didn't notice him as much, and Colorado was able to sneak in there. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I think when you think about the number one pick, like what you would do if you think about it, also just sort of as a like a value proposition. Where and that's one thing too with with this year's draft is you know the slot value for that pick is still about the same, right? You're still paying that guy the same, but last year. Victor Wembanyama got that contract. He's probably going to look good on that contract, but you know, this year you're giving it to someone else. Probably not going to. It'll be a t- taller task when we to live up to that salary. So it's just from a team building standpoint, you have to answer that question. And with Cody, I think we're starting to see the upside. He's he's playing aggressive. Uh, I think he he shot the ball pretty well. Uh, not a ton of attempts, but he's shooting it well from three. He's a different player from Jalen. He he's not quite as crafty. He's longer. Uh, I think defensively, he's going to be very impactful with that length. He's got great feet. 
uh, can really move. And, and I just think you can, when a guy like that can handle and pass and is starting to shoot and is starting to kind of flash that upside. Uh, and again, he was a player who, he was higher recruited, sure, but, but also wasn't playing for like a you know, super high profile high school powerhouse or anything, right? So he, he kind of is coming on later. We're still learning more about him. Like he hasn't been overexposed, right? As opposed to like, uh, you know, if you're going to a Montverde or an IMG or a school like that, where everyone just sees you play 30 times. So he's not, I think people are still learning about him. And I think that also is going to work in his favor. So if there's not a whole lot of excitement about upside of some of these guys in this draft, does that make it a little bit more likely that teams might look for players who have maybe more experience who are more NBA ready? I say this in the wake of Jaime Jaquez drifting all the way out of the lottery. We see this forever in the draft. There's these cycles where Nobody wants to take a four-year college player, and then a four-year college player looks terrific, and it knocks it back around. You know, um, you know. For example, the Trailblazers took four-year college players in back-to-back drafts when they took uh, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. That worked out great. And you know, there's other players who haven't, who then didn't. But Hakez has been so good. Probably, you know good chance to finish third in the rookie of the year race, just making an instant impact for Miami. Even if you don't forecast him to be a, you know, maybe a eight to 10 time all-star like you may for uh, Wembenyama and, uh, and, and, and Holmgren, if not more, are there any guys who are older who may benefit from teams saying, listen, if we can't draft a high upside guy, let's take a guy we know can help us right away. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I think there, there's a couple of different ways to look at picking in a draft like this. And this is kind of how I'm looking at it too. Um, if you're picking, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But so, you know, anywhere in the first round, outside the top, maybe the top five, like you can look at it like from the perspective of, you know, there's a ton of players who are sort of projects. Let's take the project with the highest upside. Let's swing big. Uh, maybe we get a situation, you know, like Giannis, right? Like that's like the 1% chance maybe, right? But they, sometimes you just, you take a swing on a guy you want to develop and you hit or you know, you can go the other direction where, and if you look at, you know, who's going to be probably in the draft, I, I, it, there's, there are more guys who I think would, we classify as projects, you know, teenagers, guys who are younger, or maybe not as NBA ready. You can go the other direction and say, well, probably the majority of teams have to take a guy like that because you can only take, you know, who, who's available in a given year. Uh, we can go the other direction. We're going to take someone who we view as a known quantity, uh, who we, we, at least we know what this guy is. We trust that he can Play some type of role, and I think there are a lot of interesting players like that uh, who are who are college upperclassmen who are just kind of like proven, proven solid guys. Who maybe don't right now don't look like lottery picks or, or high upside guys, but yeah. Uh, Jax wants me to ask about Kevin McCullough Jr. from Kansas. Yeah, McCullough. Well, he's an interesting case. Uh, he's having a great year. I, I'm not sure what his his stats are, and I think he might be a little bit banged up. Uh, but Kansas has asked him to do a ton, and, and he he's really broken out. But it's he's an interesting case because I think he's somebody who teams viewed. Uh, certainly the last couple of years when he was in the pre-draft process is more of like a, a two-way contract type of guy. So, you know, to see him kind of step into a really, really big high usage two-way role, now he's sort of the guy uh, on Kansas. Uh, I think that helps him. I think it puts him in a good place to get drafted. Now, I don't know exactly where that falls yet. I think his, his shooting has come back down to earth a little bit. And that was always a question like for me with him it is sort of, uh, you know, it, it's tough being a guy if you don't live at the rim. And you you sort of rely on making tough shots. And I, I think McCullough historically has done some of that. But again, if you're coming at it and you need a wing and you're looking in for an older guy, he's a good example of somebody who I think could benefit from the team having that type of philosophy. Yeah, he is a five-year college player with an extra year because of COVID. 
I don't know if there's ever been a five-year college player drafted by the NBA, uh, certainly not in the first round. So he is definitely a unique case. Uh, but he is averaging 26 and five when a steal and a half and shooting 37% from three. That's not awesome, but it's it's better than average. So Yeah, the, the tricky thing with older guys too, like being that he will turn uh, 23, yeah, in a couple months. Um, it's just like you, 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 you expect progression, right? Like you expect guys to get better. But like historically, you know, these older guys, they do sort of sometimes top out in certain areas. So, so again, it's like it's one thing where like I think everybody will use Jaime Jaquez as a sort of like the let's try this type of, you know, we'll point to that guy. But I, I think Jaime is a different case because I, I think if you were watching Jaime closely, like early in his career at UCLA, like people were high on him. He was an underclassman. Like I was, I was one of them. But he got hurt, and he's ended up staying in school longer. And that was just kind of what happened. But uh, I think, I think he was always like a first-round caliber player. But it's, I think it's a different question when you're talking about a guy like McCuller, who you know went through the pre-draft process twice, kind of went back and got that feedback to go back, and now you know here he is. He's sort of he's improved, sure. But like, it's how do you square that? And I think that's a question that's going to be part of the fun of this draft is every team has to sort of go through that process for themselves. And it's impossible, you know, because there's not a ton separating these guys to, to know right now. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. So I know Gavoni uh, recently uh, spent some, I don't know if you were there at all, but I know Gavoni read, spent some time at some big high school events, the uh, Hoop Hall Classic in uh, Springfield. I know he was recently at. And he was more bullish on the 2025 and forward class. Before I asked my contractually obligated question, I was just reviewing my contract and it says I have to ask about Brownie James. Before I ask about Brownie James, I wondered, looking beyond this draft, what there is to look forward to. Obviously, the name that comes to immediate mind is Cooper Flagg, but beyond the 2024 draft, what's out there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's optimism right now. Certainly more like top end type of guys uh, than we're seeing this year. Next year we have Cooper Flag coming via Duke. Uh, has a ton of uh, a hype behind him. Top player in this high school class. I wouldn't go so far as to like guarantee anything that he'll go one, but I do think you know everyone's very aware of what he can do. You get a ton of exposure. By the way, I will say that too. Not that I'm anywhere near in the uh, in the world that you are, but like as I talk to some people who are you know just starting to look at those guys, they're like, yeah, Cooper Flag is great. Major talent, wants to defend, plays with a high motor, uh, highly competitive, et cetera. Great size, can do a lot of things. But I wouldn't necessarily say he's the number one pick just yet. So, I mean, not that, not that they're criticizing him, but like just because he's on everybody's minds doesn't mean that he's, you know, he's a guarantee. Yeah, 100%. Like there's, yeah, well, I would say there, right now I think there are three players who I think are sort of like tracking as like hot names that I would I would just say are in the early mix that everyone should be excited about and interested in. And it's, it's flag it's Ace Bailey, who is going to Rutgers, a huge, huge recruiting pull for Rutgers. And then uh, Kaman Maluach, who is an NBA Academy player, who I, I think will be in college. Jeremy, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I, I've seen him play too. Listen, I'm moving in. I can't grow a mustache worth, you know, bleep. But listen, I'm seeing these, these 17 year olds, buddy. I can talk about this young man. I've seen him play. Sorry, go ahead. I'm pre- I'm prepared with my notes. Go for it. Oh yeah, it. definitely. I want to hear your opinion. But he uh, definitely someone who I think has good uh, some good momentum right now. I've talked to some people who rave about him. It's gonna be an interesting story. You know, again, if he, he it sounds like he will come over and play in college next year, he could end up at Duke as 
uh, Cooper Flag's teammate. So you could have it could be like uh, you know two number one pick candidates in the same team, which we saw. I think last time we saw that was probably Duke, right, with with Zion and RJ Barrett that year. Unless I'm blanking. What can't remember in the when Paolo went, was there another? I don't think so. no one was that caliber on that team. So yeah, okay, but yeah, I mean he's just sort of like a very. I haven't seen him quite as much. I've seen him a couple times, but he's got the frame. He's he's very agile and versatile defensively. He can shoot. Like he does a lot of things that are very modern uh, on both ends of the floor, and he plays super hard. So uh, well, let me uh, let me go to my notes, uh, to Jeremy. Uh, my uh, my notes here from when I watched him play in Manila. He's what like seven two or so. Listed seven uh, two. Yeah. yeah, I spoke to him, and he's got a Wembenyama like frame. <laughs> he's uh, he's very thin, has skills uh, more than your average seven foot two teenager. He's put together okay. I mean, this is why I don't trust my evaluation. I, you know, I look at him, and I'm drawn to that Fran for Schiller line about uh, he looks two years away from being two years away to me. But he's got two years, so right. So from <laughs> from his. Uh, but, you know, he was playing and competing and doing some stuff in the World Cup at age 17 or whatever. He was 16 or 17. And he was part of the South Sudan team that was one of the big, one of my favorite stories I did all in 2023 when they qualified for the Olympics out of Manila. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've seen, I haven't seen Cooper Flagg play full games, but I've seen a lot of highlights. This is why I trust people like you who do this for a living. I don't think they're comparable at all. I think Cooper Flagg is a, a much more impressive looking prospect, but you're not making the choice today. And right. I, I've been the one of the people talking about how the future of the NBA is these seven plus foot, highly skilled guys. And you're going to need one of them if you're going to compete at the highest level. And this is another one coming. But I also remember how I once got excited about Sekou uh, Damboya. Yes. Think, thinking he might be the next Giannis. So, you know, it, that's the nature of this. You know, I was just talking to um, an executive today who was getting ready to, to he was been working on the draft and we, he, you know, we were talking about the draft in general and just how even the best, best, best drafters ever have just huge whiffs on their record and how it's such an important thing but such an inexact science. And it's just maddening how important it is with how hard it is. And you now you're talking about projecting 17 year olds, you know, basically. So, but the other player, I don't know almost anything about. I've not seen any uh, footage on him. Ace Bailey, I think his name is. What, what can you tell me? Forget about the listeners. What can you tell me about him? Yeah. So he's someone who I've only seen him play a couple of times, but he, you look at him and you kind of see the way he moves and how he wants to play. And, and like, he, he kind of reminds you of Paul George, like just, just like there's like some aesthetic bias there, but like, that was just the first thing I thought when I saw him. It's like, Oh, that's kind of what it looks like. It doesn't mean he's going to be that good, but it's a pretty good place to start. Um, and you can see, see why someone like that would be a highly regarded player, you know, very sort of has the sort of the, the full sort of scoring package. He's long. I think again, someone people are still learning more about, but someone who's going to be, I think I think in that mix too. With again, we saw it with Brandon Miller just kind of steadily rose and went number two in that in that class as a. Well, yeah, well, Brandon Miller, like, in I think we talked about this in the pod before. Like, didn't Brandon Miller like look at Paul George as his idol? Like, he wanted to play like Paul George. Like, you know, it's hard to emulate. It's hard to emulate LeBron James. You know, Kobe is these guys who are coming of age now. They've obviously watched Kobe, but they didn't sort of grow up watching him. By the time they were getting to watch basketball, Kobe was either 
at the end are kind of retired. So like people like Paul George are who these guys are emulating now. Right. So by the way, Brandon Miller, in case you haven't been watching the Hornets, Brandon Miller has been putting together some games now. He's having the best like 10 day stretch of his, of his uh, career at this point. So Jackson reminding me, I couldn't remember that, you know, that he, uh, I couldn't remember the exact reference, but Brandon Miller, you know, he, they asked who his goat was and he said, Paul George in this pre-draft interview. So, but Hey, listen, his goat was Paul George and he worked himself to the second overall pick. Tell me who's wrong. Right. Uh, Worked out for him. All right. Before you go, um, let's have the Bronny James update. I mean, I see his stats. I watch him play a little bit. Do you want to get a scout or an executive or an agent to really get talking these days, bring up the name Bronny James, because everybody's got an opinion. And by the way, they're all different. It's not like people are like, oh, that guy shouldn't come out or, you know, I mean, like I've got people telling me this guy's going in the first round, no doubt. And not necessarily because of um, what he's showing at USC, but just because of dynamics around the pick. I just say he's 19 years old playing his first year of college basketball. And he had a major health event in, in July, like seven, eight months ago. So like my expectations for him are pretty low, but that's, not everybody. Everybody's a lot of people have huge expectations for him. So I know you're contractually obligated to watch and track Bronnie James. So where is he in your eyes at this point? Yeah, well, here's what I'll say. Like I saw him play in high school a bit. So I've sort of seen his progression. I'll say two things. One, like if he, if he, if he were not who he is, like if his name were not LeBron James Jr., um, I, I do think he'd be viewed as a prospect. Like he plays the right way. He has a skill set. He, he's a good player. But I will also say that given all you just said, factoring in the health factor and him still getting acclimated to playing. Like I, I think, uh, you know, were he not who he is, I also think that he would be viewed as probably more of like a guy who would benefit from uh, multiple years of college. And that may be the case, right. For development. Uh, but also something that, you know, you hear from, you know, with, with chatter around the league is that it, it does sound like there's a pretty real chance he goes in the draft. And also obviously the factor of LeBron, uh, <laughs> you know, those are interesting wrinkle in that. So, this is a situation unlike I think any we've really seen for uh, with a prospect with uh, you know a possible domino of that magnitude attached, right? So uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do think it's a thing that we'll be talking about more for sure. I this will guarantee you. I will guarantee you. <laughs> I put money on that. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Thanks for uh, stopping by and giving us an update on where the uh, draft class is going. We appreciate your time and keep that razor in the drawer. We want to see that mustache get nice and full by the spring. Right. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks for listening to the Collective Podcast. We will talk to you guys with the Tims on Friday.